Welcome to the Internal Comms Podcast with me, Katie McCauley. Each fortnight, I get up close and personal with someone helping to shape and progress the way organisations communicate with their people. Listeners, for this episode, you are in for a real treat. As individuals, Sue Dewhurst and Liam Fitzpatrick have very impressive CVs. Sue is an experienced internal communicator who for many, many years has been training and coaching thousands of leaders and comms professionals. Her models, her frameworks are used by organisations around the world. Liam has spent three decades working in comms, both in-house and for major consultancies. He also lectures on developing teams, on research and planning, and serves as an external examiner for UK universities. But put them together and they are even more of a formidable force. It's estimated that around 50% of UK IC practitioners have been through their Melcrum Black Belt training programme. And now they have co-authored a book, Successful Employee Communications Practitioner's Guide to Tools, Models and Best Practice for Internal Communication. This book is full of great case studies of actual IC best practice as well as the theory and that is what I love about this conversation you're about to hear. Not only are Liam and Sue very warm and very honest and genuine with their ideas and their insights, their real world experience I think is undeniable. So without further ado I give you Sue and Liam. So, Sue and Liam, what a delight to have you on the Internal Comms podcast. I don't know if this is true, but I read that around a half of practitioners in the UK have been through the original Melcrum Black Belt programme at some point in their career. Does that sound about right? That doesn't surprise me. I was only involved in the Brett programme for the first three or four years of it, and Sue's been the person who's developed it massively in the last how long? It's the original Melcrum one, I think, that we're best known for, isn't it? So, yeah, it's kind of nice to think that there's a few people going around with your thinking in the back pocket. Yeah, Mm. absolutely. So, sort of reflecting, and if I forced you very hard to generalise, because I know that's not always a good thing to do, but if I forced you to generalise and reflect on all those people you've met over the years that you've trained and you've advised, what's the consistent thing that delights you about IC practitioners? And conversely, what would be the thing that perhaps would slightly more, let's say, frustrate or annoy you, do you think? Liam, do you want to go first? Well, I was going to let Sue go first. Sue in the hot seat. She doesn't have to disagree with me too quickly. All right, then, I've got one. What delights me is I think this is an industry where people are so good at sharing. I think people are very open at sharing ideas, sharing the practice. See, this is what happens when you let me go first. He wants to say the same thing. I've written down that. (laughs) (laughs) You quite often do hear people in internal comms say that, that it's a very generous profession. In terms of what consistently disappoints me is... I would have said the same thing if you asked me this 10 years ago. We still consistently jump to channels. We still consistently get distracted by the new shiny thing. Right. Liam? 
I hate to start the session by saying what she said, because those are exactly the two thoughts I had. One was the, you mentioned the Black Belt program. One of the things that made the Black Belt program, when I was involved, it was so enjoyable to do, was you'd have a room of 25 people. And to be honest, if you just gave them tea and coffee on a periodic basis and just got them talking, it would have been brilliant because people were just sharing ideas and opportunities and, and their problems and their challenges. I always found that really interesting and exciting. But I agree, Sue, you're absolutely right. It's, ever since I've worked in internal comms, people get very excited about the next shiniest thing mm-hmm. and will jump immediately to channels. And you sometimes think, well, actually, that's a really cool channel. That's brilliant. That's great. But is it actually going to solve the business problem you need to solve? It's going to row back a bit. But it's so tempting in our world to get a really nice, shiny bit of technology, isn't it? Or a really nice. And I remember the first time I ever did an employee newspaper. Thrill of opening the box and seeing the newspapers in there. That's lovely, isn't it? It's so exciting. But actually, Does it actually solve the big problem at the end of the day? Not always. So let's set all this in the context of you guys. I've got to make sure that it doesn't sound like you're married to each other. I (laughs) realise that. But having said that, there's been a working partnership for 20 years, if not more, I guess. Can you remember the very first time you met and what your initial impressions of each other were? I can't actually remember the moment we met, but we were both working in virtually identical situations. I was working for a company called Marconi, which made telecoms equipment, and we were going spectacularly broke. And Sue was working in NTL, a cable company, which was going spectacularly broke. And we were forever rigging each other up and going, you won't believe what they're doing now. And Sue was going, yeah, well, what about this? This is what they're doing now. And then our daily bread and butter in both our separate organisations was, okay, this month we're going to reduce the headcount by another thousand or we're closing this site. And we were constantly saying, have you done this? Have you done that? It comes back to that point about sharing. It was having someone that you could actually ring up and just laugh about it with yes. a kind of gallows humour sort of way but also I think I don't think I could have got through that period without actually having someone outside the organisation who I could just bounce ideas off and I think that cemented our relationship and it was like an 18 month period wasn't it where we were just every week we were on the phone and you know usually Friday afternoons just turned into this laugh fest where we were we were laughing at whatever bonkersness had happened that week. So yeah and I can tell you how we met actually I remember it was actually at a CIPR event oh. which Lean was speaking at and as I walked into the room this person that I'd never met came towards me and said I want to talk to you and I was like who is this person and he'd seen my name and my organisation on the list oh. and he'd seen that I was working in this organisation that was going through the same as his did and thought oh we should connect which is very Liam to be honest he is the best networker I know I mean you're brilliant at connecting people and actually after that meeting he said to me oh for the first time we're going to set up an internal comms committee for the CIPR why don't you come to the first meeting and that was the first meeting of what is now CIPR inside and we ended up working together on that and oh, looking wow. after professional development that's right and we wrote what became the intercom matrix of the professional So that walking across the room and shaking hands with someone, introducing yourself, I think it's a fantastic thing. That small act turned into this partnership where you ended up designing training programmes. Then now you very recently co-authored a book together. What's been the secret, do you think, of that working partnership over that time? Is there one? 
<laughs> Liam's just smiling, knowingly, but not saying much here. Because it's, it's almost like, you know, when the local newspaper reporter gets sent out to cover the golden wedding, <laughs> the question the junior reporter always asks, so what is your secret to a happy marriage? Um, so we've worked together on and off, and we haven't worked, you know, in complete partnership for that period of time. So worked on and off. And I think what's worked quite well is we're very, very different people, and we have very, very different views. So, for example, Sue is so incredibly practical anything I ever say her response is usually well what do I do with that then how does that work on a Monday in a nicer way than that obviously (laughs) well that's how it feels to me that's my experience (laughs) whereas I can go gallivanting off and get really excited about you know theories and ideas and stuff like that I think if we were both the same I think we probably would have murdered each other by now although I know Sue's probably come quite close to on a number of occasions so I think it's that sense of completely different perspectives on things Mm. I think that's really super helpful for me yeah. I don't think we have different views about, I mean, if you said, for example, what's the value of internal comms, you wouldn't get us saying different things. I think you'd get us coming from different angles. So as Liam said, he's the ideas person. There would have been no training course without Liam. There'd have been no book without Liam because he's the person that has the idea. But I remember there was a classic thing early on that epitomises the relationship so much that I was out shopping one weekend and I get a random text from Liam that just says, Piano. And I looked at this text and thought, what's he talking about, piano? Is his daughter learning the piano? He's bought a piano? And I just put the phone back in my pocket. And the next thing he calls me and says, didn't you get my text? And I was like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. And he said, oh, it's this new model I've come up with about influence, piano. And he kind of goes through it. And I go, oh, and start asking all these questions about it. And then he goes really quiet. And I said just annoyed you haven't I <laughs> and he said I just wanted you to say it was a good idea and I was like well I needed to know how it worked to be able to say if it was a good idea and that's kind of classic yeah Liam and Sue. I felt my blood pressure rising as you were telling that story <laughs> I think that's the heart of actually great teamwork as well you know I see that even within AB you'll have someone often you know it might be me rushing in waving my hands around saying I've seen it it looks like this and drawing something on the board and everyone's sort of doing that thing like, really I did some work a while ago for a smallest company and they put everyone through this psychometric testing profile, which is fine and great, except they only employed a very, very narrow type of personality. It was horrible because yes. everyone was exactly the same. There was no innovation. There was zero creativity in the organisation. And the whole place was this heaving mass of frustration and irritation Yes, because all these people just get banging into each other all the time. Yeah. Yes, yeah. you need to diversity don't you absolutely are there topics on which you actually do disagree or have disagreed in the past when it comes to comms or is it just that you take slightly different perspectives oh let's still answer that one well and if you can think of one you'll have to because i couldn't think of a topic on which we actually disagreed i thought it's normally that we have a different perspective you quite often pull me up for being a bit corporatey. Do I? Yeah, sometimes when we were writing the book, you were, well, that sounds a bit corporatey BSE. You kind of felt that I could be a bit too PRE about stuff. Right. Um, you pull me up on that a few times, and actually, usually, ninety nine percent of the time, you were bang on right. So, uh, <laughs> but by and large, we actually have the very, very similar fundamental view about 
internal comms or comms in general, which is start with the outcome, start with the strategic objective. Then you can come to work your channels out later, but what do you really want people to do as a result of receiving this communication? And I think that fundamentally has been the thing that we've kept coming back to. And through the book, you'll see that that's kind of a theme motif that keeps coming through along the way is what are you actually trying to achieve here? It's actually probably the language you're right is the one thing. I bet you've forgotten this, but Liam once sent me a dictionary in the post. Um, because <laughs> you remember now, now uh, because he sent me a note and I didn't know what a word meant ah. and I said what does that word mean and he said oh you're a comms person you should know what this word means and I said no I'm a comms person so I should use simple language so Absolutely. that everybody knows what it means oh you don't take it <laughs> so we had this kind of big discussion about you know whether one should have a wide vocabulary or whether you should use easy words and the next thing I knew Collins English Dictionary turned up in the post from Liam with a note saying, learn a few more words. <laughs> I think that's a really difficult line to tread, actually. In a LinkedIn blog just the other day, I think I was thinking, you know, 25 things I've learned over the years. And one of them was, you know, no one ever sounded clever by using long words. It's the opposite. If you can make something very complex, incredibly simple to understand, that's the clever thing to do. But on the other hand... I love words. So if I see a word and I think, oh my goodness me, I've never used that before, I have to be all over it. I have to work out how to use it and when it's appropriate to use it because I just have a fascination with words. I'm kind of... Yeah, both but has she told you what the word was? Because <laughs> was, I bet it, it would have been something like turnip, not Nebuchadnezzar or something like that. <laughs> Let's dig into the book because I yes, have it it's got it lots here. of big words. It's in got it. lots of big he wrote words. Those ones. Let's get the title right here so everyone can find it. Although we'll put it in the show notes: "Successful Employee Communications: A Practitioner's Guide to Tools, Models, and Best Practice for Internal Communication." My first question, I guess, is what prompted you both to write this book? Liam's idea. So I've written one already with Klaus Valskov. There were whole chunks of practice in there and five years have changed. And I started having a conversation again with Sue and I said, I'm thinking about doing the book. We should really have written the first book together. We should have done that. I now think that would have been the obvious thing to do after doing Black Belt. So it just seemed to me obvious that we'd do it together. I'm really glad we did, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Sue, is it aimed at anyone in particular, this book? Did you have a person in mind as you were writing it? I mean, she's aimed at communication professionals. Mm. It's aimed at internal communication professionals, although external comms people have said to us, actually, it's really helpful for external comms people as well. But I know when Liam first said about writing it together, I picked up his first book again and thought, gosh, this is actually a really good book because a lot of the topics are quite similar. You know, how can we write another one? So I think the thing we tried to do to distinguish it is it's quite research-based. Yes. We really tried to go and say, right, what's the research saying? And we also said, let's pack it with case studies. You absolutely have. Yeah, it's really good. So there's lots of really very practical advice of how it works on the ground, which I think is really yeah. useful. Because you've written the books, yes. you've, written, you've drawn quite heavily on case studies, haven't yes. you? Yes, a, a, a lot of case studies, yes. Yeah. And people love it, don't they? Yes, I think you can have the theory. I love the theory. My favourite joke about a consultant is they see something working in practice and wonder if it will work in theory. But if you can bring the theory out of what you actually see happening on the ground, it's probably more powerful. 
Let's dig into the book. One of the things I loved straight off the bat was that you define internal communications and our role as internal communicators. You say it's about creating meaning. I just wondered if you could elaborate on this. And the thought that was going through my head as I read that was, goodness me, is creating meaning actually getting harder in today's world because of the noise, because of the complexity in our lives, in our working lives? I don't know who wants to take the initiative on that question. <laughs> For me, it's about that contrast between, if you like, the old information transmission model of communication that says communication is about passing on information and it's simple. So maybe to take a controversial example, it might be Brexit means Brexit. Okay. You know, it's simple. It's a word. It means this. Whereas if you kind of go further on in the theory, it would say, well, no meaning socially constructed. You know, we get meaning because of the way that things are framed to us or we get meaning because we talk about them and then we work the meaning out. So it's not quite that simple, actually. Brexit might mean one thing to one person. It might mean something else to somebody else. So to me, two of the most important questions we can be asking in internal comms or helping people to answer are what does it mean and why should I care? And we can do that by the way that we help frame things. How do we frame things in a meaningful way? And how do we help dialogue happen so that people can find their own meaning? That would be my take. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And to your question, Katie, the fire hose of information that comes flying at people is just getting bigger and bigger and the pump's getting stronger and stronger. And every organisation needs someone to try and make sense of this kind of tsunami of stuff that comes at people. And if someone's not doing it, then what hope has anyone at work got to actually understand what really matters around here? At best, you're lucky if people, you know, do the right thing. It's quite an old school idea because you need to point people in the right direction saying this is what matters around. But I think it's never been more important than now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the brilliant Bill Quirk once said, and I've always remembered it, he said people are suffering from information overload and meaning underload. Ah. Yeah. Bill said a lot of the classic things that are still so valid today. And I One think day I'll get him on the podcast. Really is. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, he wrote one of the first books, didn't he? I think, was it Making Connections that people yeah. still talk about? Well, the first book I bought when I started working in telecoms was his Communicating Corporate Change, which had the escalator in it. Yes. And I actually had to go and track an old copy down the other week because my one seemed to have disappeared somewhere along the way. We'll put all these books in the show notes because I think they'll be useful for people who might not have gone back through the earlier textbooks because they are still relevant, a lot of yeah. them. I think a lot of stuff that Bill said was because he said them for the first time. I think a lot of people don't realise the debt that we have to people like him and Roger Dupree. Mm. who frame things clearly and actually have, you know, driven the profession forward. But his point about the one thing we're short of is meaning, not information, which is absolutely super true, yeah. I was struck by something you said, Sue, about meaning being created in the dialogue that you have to have with people. For meaning to take place, it's not just broadcasting messages at them, but it's then how they're interpreting that and having a conversation around it, which I think is one of the shifts that I'm very keen to see. It's not happening as necessarily as much as it should be, is it, that we're actually entering into a meaningful dialogue with no, people that work for us? I, th I think we can be obsessed with, for example, cascading a consistent message. Yeah. And a lot of our language around communication is cascade, you know, get the message out. It's old style information transmission. As much as we talk about dialogue, we use the language of information transmission. 
Yeah. And I suspect we now live in a world where people don't want to be shouted at anymore. You know, they're not interested in it and they just switch off as soon as you start doing it. So mm-hmm. if you want people to get with the programme and focus on other things, just stop shouting at them. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. We live in a world, I think social media must have driven this a lot, that people want to take part, don't they? Mm-hmm. They don't just want to passively read something. They think, oh, OK, I've got a comment on that. I've got a thought on that. I don't agree with it. I'm going to tell the world I don't agree with it. And then a dialogue starts off almost sort of organically, I guess. And you're absolutely right. And even if they don't, actually express a point of view they'd like to believe that if they had one they'd be listened to yes uh, a lot of the old ways of communicating basically have been on the premise that we'll have questions but the questions are only to help you understand they're not to actually help us debate or formulate policy or whatever and that's mm. um mm. yeah i think people in the workplace now actually kind of expect to be part of the conversation part of the plan you know? yes absolutely absolutely it's even to be honest it's changed the way that i've think about comms planning even recently really yeah because I've always said well you know you have the conversation with the business to understand the issue and you set your objectives and then you know you think about how you're going to get it across to your audience whereas I've now changed the order and said well you know first stage is you explore the issue you explore it from the business perspective and you explore it from the other perspective because who says the business knows right yeah you know it's just one perspective yeah I think it's taken me a while to to learn that actually yes in fact I just had a conversation exactly that with a multinational company conference call very early this morning where they were saying we've got a set of values we've got a purpose we've got a set of behaviours and how do we get that across to the organisation I was thinking okay so what might any of those mean to your audience before we start planning how to do it exactly and let's find out what's in their minds and how that might be meaningful to them and what they're looking for I guess from all those things yeah and the idea of branding anybody that might speak up against change of being resistant you know what if the opinion they've got is actually helpful what if the organization is about to do something damaging and that is not a lone voice being difficult it's somebody that if you listened they could help you stop tripping up you know because they're closer to the customer than the person planning that change i hadn't seen it for years but i saw recently someone was talking about the segments of their audiences and they actually had segmented people into kind of happy campers and one group was called wreckers I don't think, oh, I haven't seen that for a while. It took me back a bit. One thing I'm quite curious about that, because you spend a lot of time in Scandinavia, so, and one thing I was curious about is whether or not you notice a difference in how Scandinavian companies and organisations communicate versus perhaps places elsewhere in the world. I spend most of my time there, actually. It feels like my second home. I'm trying to get somebody to adopt me. To me, Scandinavia... There's a lot of listening. Really? You know, I work a lot in Sweden, and Sweden's known for being very consultative. Right. So, yes, it's a very dialogue. In fact, the definition of communicative leadership is a Swedish definition of leadership communication, and it's all about dialogue. I mean, literally, the definition is dialogue-based. Wow. Yeah. That's so interesting. But it does depend on the culture. We've just had Mark Hannant here, who runs a business out in India and has for a decade, who's very clear about the fact that you wouldn't invite employees to go and question in public their leader. I mean, they just wouldn't do it. So... I guess it does massively depend on the culture of the... I think you're right. It is culturally specific. And I think an American business will be different from a European business. Mm. I did some work in a French business a while ago and it was a French pharmaceutical business. And I was kind of chatting about, you know, sometimes there's a sense of purpose is important. And someone just said to me, what, in a factory in France, you're going to go in and talk about being in business for good. You'll be laughed out of the room. and um, Because the idea is, you know, you come to work, you do your job. And, you know, the fact you might be making vaccines or washers or, you know, or or shoes doesn't really matter. You come and do your work. 
But the thing I did think was quite interesting, when we were doing a lot of the academic research for the book, some of the most influential current writings in academic circles are coming out of Sweden, out of Denmark, and bits of Germany, and it's coming out of Northern Europe. And it is my suspicion that a lot of the things that the attitudes about the workplace and how work, you know, we manage and work with people, the rest of Europe seems to be about 10 or 15 years behind some of the thinking that comes out of the Northern Northern Europe. So I'm curious about to see whether or not a lot of that academic thinking translates into practice elsewhere in Europe over time. And, of course, probably worth mentioning that there is a Western bias around a lot of the literature around communication and leadership. There just is. Mm. One thing I found decades ago, a million years ago, Sue and I, we did a big piece of research and we surveyed, I think something in the reason about 800 practitioners around the world in internal comms. And we asked the simple question was, what are the skills you have that got you where you are today? And what are the skills that you think you're going to need to go forward in the future? And what really struck us at the time was there was a massive rift between North America and the rest of the world. And the European and the particularly the Australian tradition was much more allied to HR thinking, whereas the North American was much more around just get information over. Yeah, very journalistic driven. Um, and it was so the skills that US practitioners or North American practitioners really valued were things like writing, editing, whereas in Europe it was much more around researching, listening. Those, and that was quite a striking difference. The one was that it was about two, it was quite a while ago, about ten years ago. Yeah, and I sense that gap though is closed quite a lot. Yeah, listening to Americans to talking out. now. Yes, they've moved much more to a kind of HRE driven or people centred model of content. Yes. That brings me very neatly to my next question, because you talk about different levels of value that we can add to our organisations. And there's obviously a spectrum from creating content on one hand to, you mentioned you call asset grower. I just wonder if you can talk about asset growth, what that means. Do you have any, without necessarily naming organisations, do you have some examples of that you can share? Yeah, it's quite interesting you ask that question because Sue's smiling at me because when we were writing the book, this was one of the examples where she kept saying, you need to be what more practical. What does that mean? <laughs> what are you talking about? And I was going, it just sounds nice. Now, shut up. <laughs> it's an attempt to actually, it, it builds on those sort of comments like we mentioned Bill Quirk before and he talked about, you know, having people who were post people and crafters and drafters. And, and what's attempting to say is that fundamentally, the question that we should be asking as communicators is, what difference am I making to the organisation I'm working for? And am I just here to run some channels, which is great, and you can do fantastic things? Am I here to be a, a business partner to help someone achieve their defined objectives? And maybe I can help them articulate those objectives, but they're the person who owns those objectives. Or is part of my job to use my specific experiences and skills and insights as a communicator, as someone who listens to people, to spot opportunities and be proactively the person who comes forward. One of the case studies in the book talks about a health and safety programme where after a merger, the communications people realised that there were two very, very different health and safety cultures in the two parts of the organisation. And they realised that this was potentially quite dangerous and off their own bat, they went and investigated it and explored it and they came up with a solution and, as a result, improved the safety record of the organisation. So it could be something as simple as that. One of the case studies which didn't make the book was talking about a merger where this particular company, which is a large conglomerate in FMCG, who 
spend a lot of time acquiring businesses. The comms function has developed a methodology, an approach, means they're very, very slick almost at go, turning up with the newly acquired businesses and saying, right, how do we protect business as usual? How do we make sure that all the great things that we've bought your company for are protected from? And it's about actually saying, I'm part of the business process. I'm not just someone who takes orders. I'm mm-hmm. someone who actually sees things that other people won't see, and I right. understand things that other people won't see. So I'm going to own that, and I'm going to own my professionalism, and, and I'm not going to wait for someone to ask me. I'm just going to stick my nose in where it wasn't invited, mm-hmm. and I'm going to add some value. And I think we do that all the time. And, you know, I don't want to say that if you're managing a Slack channel or you're producing, you know, pages for an intranet or, you know, a workplace, you're still doing it because you have the power to set the agenda. And what makes us powerful in all of that is actually coming with data and being the person who really, really understands what's going on in the organisations. If you start from the place that says, my job is to add value here, then you need to very quickly get to, okay, what do I actually know that no one else knows? Mm. What can I see that no one else sees? What can I do, which has actually is being neglected elsewhere in the organisation? And that mindset gets you away from being trapped into, do we have a three-column article in the newsletter this month or a two-column article, and gets you into, what do we actually want people to do and why do we want people to do it? then you start adding value to your organisation and all the debates about having a place at the table, wherever that is, they kind of evaporate quite quickly. I'm fixated on this as well. You know, it's the business problem that you're trying to solve through communications. Fixate on the business problem first, work out how, as a communicator, you can add value or solve that. I'd love to talk about the ARROW framework just briefly, because I think at the start, how you set your objectives and how smart those objectives are, well, the rest of it follows from that often, doesn't it? So could you just talk us through a little bit of the ARROW framework? I can. Uh, I can tell you how ARROW came about, actually. I was running some assessment centres years ago for an organisation that was restructuring the comms function, and I was playing a business leader. And each person had to come and kind of talk to me in our first meeting. And then they were supposed to ask me about a project and go and write a comms plan off the back of it. And what really shocked me, to be honest, I was shocked, is that as the leader, I was completely able to get away with, and I wasn't being difficult, I just responded to the questions that I was asked, waffling about, oh, I really want people to feel engaged about my project and, you know, excited. And and if they push back on me, they push back at the level of, no, you can't have a newsletter because people can't have individual newsletters. You know, you can have a story in hours. But I remember them all coming back, lots of these people, not everyone, but lots of people, presenting all these enormous comms plans to me and sitting there thinking, but what are these comms plans for? (laughs) You know, what? You don't know the problem you're trying to solve. So Arrow is designed to almost force people to don't offer any communication solutions yet, don't talk about communication, ask these questions about the business. So ARROW stands for, first of all, AIM. So you're asking questions about in business terms, where do you want to be in six months' time? What do you need people to do to help you get there? What's going to drive those behaviours? How do you need to get people to feel? What targets have you got? The R is reality. So where are people now? How big is this problem? Have we got a big gap to close or a little one? The second R is roadblocks. 
So what could stop us getting from here to there? So we're just gathering as much understanding as we can about what's the problem we're trying to solve here. Always opportunities. So, for example, if somebody's just given you a great long list of here are 10 things I want people to do and you're thinking, oh, my heck, I've got 10 projects like yours, you can ask a question like, OK, of those 10 things, what's the one thing that's going to make the biggest difference? Yes. Or that kind of stuff. And the W is who and when, you know, so who needs to do those things? When exactly are these problems happening? You don't have to ask things in this order. All it's trying to do is to almost break the habit that when somebody comes to say, I want. So you can't have that, but you can have this. And instead you say, OK, interesting. So assuming that I get you the video, for example, when people have watched it in business terms, what are you hoping is going to be different? So it just tries to flip the conversation, exactly as Liam said, to be about adding value. And I like to think about almost reframing from thinking about if you go to see somebody, are you taking a brief? Or actually, are you exploring what's the problem we're trying to solve here? Because yes. that's why I'm still working in comms after 25 years, because I still think it's quite interesting and difficult, because every time it's like having a new jigsaw that says, here's another one, you know, it's a thousand pieces. Yes. What does the picture on this one need to look like? And you've always got this different combination of what's the business problem? Who are the people? You know, how do I put all this together and make it work? And the answer's never the same. No, it's never the same, is it? You might have some off-the-shelf tools and techniques, as you say, that you use to help frame the thinking, but the problem is always unique, which I agree with you. That's the fun of it all. It is, and the danger is, I think, if you think channels people then get habits. I've seen it so many times. Right. So whatever the problem is, they go, oh, yeah, you can have a slot in the newsletter on Thursday and we'll put it on the app. And the danger is you get the same solution every time because those are your habits. Well, that's how our brains work, isn't it? You build shortcuts in and, yes, and having that discipline to say, well, what do you actually want to actually happen? You know, why are we actually doing this? I have had the experience on numerous occasions when I've asked the question, and just the person across the table from you, you suddenly see that this realisation, they don't actually know. No, no. And they think you're a blooming genius for asking the question because they think you're super insightful. And you think, I did some work with a Norwegian company once and they'd done a management conference and the chief executive had been challenged at the end. But he said, but what is our strategy? And in a fit of frustration, he pointed to the conference slogan, which was something like building value. That's our strategy. And for three months afterwards, the comms department was desperately suddenly discovered it was the strategy department because it was like trying to... Yes. But actually, just the act of asking the question, what do you want people to do, provokes all sorts of quite interesting responses that people have never thought about. And yes. you can look really clever really quickly but without actually knowing the answer just by asking the question. And I think Arrow does it beautifully. Yeah. And helping leaders even. You know, yeah. teaching a leader just a really simple technique like do, feel, know. You know, I taught a group of leaders the other week and I got them back for a second session this week and gratifyingly they were telling me if they're, I'm sure they've been driving people mad because they said they've been sitting in meetings, project meetings, and thinking, well, this is really interesting but I don't know what they want me to do so they're kind of you know well what is it you want us to do with this and it's so simple mm. something you said Liam I remember a quote that's a French philosopher I'm sure who says something like judge the mind of a man not by his answers but by his questions I think so often I'm in the same situation as you you are asking sometimes what might seem like almost the naive question so when you say you want to raise awareness of what why and to what end I think quite often there's that kind of fundamental attribution error. People 
are always impressed by a challenging question, even if it's asked out of naivety. A challenging question actually says something about your mind, doesn't it? It absolutely does, yes. And I think people love to have the opportunity to think about a question because I think so many answers and certainly when you get to a certain age maybe I'm being ageist I don't know I'm just old maybe but so many answers that just you kind of spring to the answer because you've been asked it so many times it's lovely to be asked a question where you go oh I don't know <laughs> let me think about that <laughs> and the moments when people say that's a good question but I think it's interesting I meet so many communicators that are kind of afraid of that actually afraid of putting a leader in a position where they don't know the answer or it feels nice to give a solution you know they yes. want to give solution they think they've got a leader in front of them that wants a solution so it's that feeling of you know this leader's really going to be disappointed with me if I start asking questions when what they want is a solution that comes back to the point about where you add value because if you believe your locus for being in the room is purely and simply because you're a great writer or you know how to put together a podcast or whatever then you'll only ever be asked to do the writing piece which is great and if that's what you love then they're good but if you think that actually that just gets me in the room, but my real value here is my ability to help them frame their message and get their clarity about their meaning, and I'm going to get there by asking, okay, what is your aim? What is your reality here? Those sorts of questions. You can add so much value, and you don't have to be the expert. You don't actually have to understand, you know, double entry bookkeeping or EBITDA accounting or whatever. Mm-hmm. All you need to do is be able to pose that question. Well, what are we actually trying to do here? Let's talk a little bit about audiences. Liam, I read a quote from you when I was researching for this episode, which I absolutely love. My take as a communicator, you wrote, is that no one should understand my audiences better than me, which I love and completely agree with. But how do we develop a deep and meaningful understanding of our internal audiences? Yeah. So just to clarify that, shouldn't mean that I should be offended if someone does understand the audience better than me because that way relies the path of madness and misery and suffering what I mean is part of the value that you bring to the organization is being the ears and that means that you basically need to go out and talk to people Sue must have heard me tell this story a thousand times one of the best people ever worked for me was the heaviest smoker I ever met and we worked on this campus up in Coventry and if you sent her an email and you were on the on the site that meant that she could go see you because that would be a cigarette opportunity on yes. the way there and a cigarette opportunity on the way yes. back and if you bumped into someone on the way there's another cigarette opportunity and what it meant was that she knew absolutely everything that happened on that site if, you know, if a mouse had a cold on that site she'd know <laughs> about it and what it meant was that you'd have this stability where something went off you'd be able to pick up the phone to Helen and go what's happening in Coventry and she'd know and as a result every piece of advice that she ever gave to the leaders was always listened to was always considered in the light of well Helen actually knows what she's talking about and if they didn't agree with her that was fine but at least she got listened to and I think there's no substitute for actually going out and meeting people so I've always taken the view that a communicator who has their lunch at their desk five days a week is probably not going to be much use to anyone some of the best experiences I've ever had are doing things like working as a receptionist in a premier in years ago for half a day but going out and just talking to people and that's for me part of the joy of the job and that's really useful that good insight into who the people are because it stops you sometimes you can't write stuff until you've actually heard them speak 
and remember as a consultant that because you've met people in one organisation, they're not translatable. I did work with the Met and with another police force within six months of each other mm. and having done focus groups with detectives and these two police forces couldn't have been more different yes. in how they spoke and how they thought. And then remember organisations run on data. So come with some sort of data somehow, get some information, be that a survey, be that looking at the feeds that come back from your channels or whatever, but come with data. Mm. But importantly, don't go into rooms to go and show the boss how clever you are. Go into rooms with data to help them make a decision with the data. If your mindset is about proving your worth, then you're probably just going to be fighting a losing battle. If your mindset is actually about saying, well, this worked last time, but this didn't work so well, what would be a really good result here and actually exploring the data and one of the things we talk about in the book is actually following a process a conversation process with leaders to talk them through the data so they understand the implications of what they're trying to do so go out meet lots of people it's part of the fun of the job but also come with data that's the crucial thing so would you agree with that i'd agree with that one thing liam said that i think is really important is about actually going out being there watching people i'm quite fascinated by behavioral science yes which will say that sometimes we're not very aware of human beings of what we really do, never mind the reasons why we do it. Mm. So if you ask me something in a focus group, I'll tell you what I think, mm. but it actually might not be what I do in practice. Yes. So this whole thing of actually being there, seeing what people do, I think is a really valuable thing to do. Mm. I love that sort of observational research because you're absolutely right. If you ask people their opinion of what they do, they'll tell you one thing. If you actually watch them, they may do something else. Yeah. I think it's really interesting because if you've actually seen seen it then it's quite easy to find yourself one day sitting in a meeting at head office and lots of middle-aged blokes pontificating about you know well people feel like this but if you've actually seen people on the actually there is a little bell starts going off in the back of your head they go actually that's not how they're going to see it that's not Mm. and that gives you sometimes just enough stimulus to step in and go well i'm not sure and actually helps you move the conversation along a bit. And just having experience sometimes. I mean, working for one of the banks years ago, I was lucky enough that the head office that I was in was straight across from our main call centre. And we had a time where, because we'd been actually too successful, we hadn't got enough people answering the phones for all the customers that were coming in, and it was not nice. And I remember going, and I used to call Listen on a Friday night. She used to walk across to the call centre, stick a pair of headphones on, and it was awful. You know, having that feeling of taking call after call after call where you've got a customer screaming at you because they've been waiting for 15 minutes and you constantly looked at the wall board and there were 100 calls waiting. And at least I had that feeling of, this is awful, you know, and that helped me do my job. It's walking in somebody else's shoes, Exactly. Yeah. We've seen the rise of what's been called employee activism, particularly in the States, I think with Wayfair, I think with Google. Is that something we should... because this means employees have found their voice and they're using it? Or is it something that we need to be wary of, do you think? It's a good question. And I think it props up in a few places. And there was one of the case studies in the book, which we edited out at the client's request, they had an incident where after a big gun show, one of these big shootings in the States, mm. a large chunk of the US employees wanted to take a stand and you know speak up against gun ownership and speak for gun control. But the corporation in the States took the view that the other half of the workforce probably had guns and you know they and they didn't want to get involved in the controversy. And, and I can see how from a corporate point of view, particularly if you live in something like the UK at the moment, where you know half the population wants Brexit and half doesn't, or whatever, however, and you can see that people just 
just don't want to go there on certain subjects because you've got to work with people. You can, I can see how potentially it's a challenge. The reality, though, is that I think by and large people come to work today and they expect to bring their whole self to work. Yes. And indeed, organisations for decades have been going, yeah, we want the whole human to come to work. Well, if they do, they come with a whole bunch of views, opinions. Mm. I suppose the problem for some of these, and, and like the gun control thing, it's such a controversial issue that I'm sure divides opinion maybe within families, let alone companies, is then do you have to have a view? And what is that view as a corporation when, as you say, a large proportion of people just won't agree with it, I guess. Do we accept certain clients as customers of our organisation? I think that was another question that came up. But I think also, increasingly, if you look at say, the fashion industry, people are looking to big fashion brands to take a lead on things like, you go to someone like Calvin Klein, for example, they're taking a massive lead on anti-slavery, the work they do on things like use of water in water-stressed communities, women's rights. They do fantastic work in those areas and their view is very simple. Our customers expect us to take a view on these things yes. and stand up for it. And some of those issues do veer slightly into, in some people's minds, controversy. Mm. I'm not saying that anyone in the world could advocate slavery, but mm. there is a debate to be had about things like water usage in water-stressed areas in the world. But people increasingly expect corporations to have a conscience. So yes. why should their employees not expect them to have one as well? Yeah. Let's skip quickly if we can to channels and platforms because we live in a world now I often make the joke that we've got so many platforms it's like we're in Clapham Junction we know we don't join up we don't know what to do with them I'm using that one I like that <laughs> what's your prediction for the future can you see a time when all this sorts itself out you can envisage the kind of perfect channel suite and what that might look like where are we going, do you think, with all these channels and all these platforms? And as you said earlier, these bright, shiny tools. Yeah, I think there's a danger we get hung up on them. I think, I mean, one of the most interesting things, I guess, is that we don't know. So I remember teaching courses when social media was new and we ran sessions going, so, you know, let's talk about what is a blog? <laughs> and at the time, some things landed, some things didn't. So I distinctly remember room of people going, well, what's Twitter? What's the point in that? What people would just talk for 30 characters about nothing? Why would they do that? And that'll never take off. And then on the other hand, you remember Second Life? I was just going to mention and we second, were, life. second Life. No, I don't. It was this oh, virtual world. And it was around the same time as when that was all coming on. And the idea is that, you know, we would all have avatars. Uh, avatars would be meeting in virtual meeting rooms. And I think there was one company that actually made a whole virtual no, copy of its headquarters. A massive BP had a massive site. Yeah. Nike, you could buy Nike shoes in a Nike store. And this, so it was massive. Second Life was going to be the thing. Twitter took off, Second Life didn't. So I think the interesting thing is, who knows? You know, who could have predicted what we got this time long ago? I think what we can tend to do, though, to be honest, is... I think we overuse stuff, even the whole ambassadors thing at the moment. I think, you know, to me, there's a danger in, you can't have people being ambassadors for everything, you know, just as you were just saying there, Liam, about, you know, I'm off Facebook again at the moment. I don't want people selling to me on Facebook. I don't want a corporate newsfeed on my Facebook. No. I think LinkedIn has changed, it actually. It has changed, yes. You know, beyond all recognition. Do we end up with backlash? You know, yes. so I think it's going to be interesting about things that did work for us and we learned they work for us suddenly stop working for us because we overdid it. I remember hearing Bill Quirk saying years ago, someone asked him this question, what's the next big channel? And he just said, it's line managers. And he said, do you know what? At the end of the day, people like people and they want a human being to explain it to them. 
everything else is useful and helpful but the thing you've got to deliver is you've got to deliver a human conversation between two people who are understanding each other um, mm. and I think losing sight of that is really dangerous I think I think maybe the thing that has changed since those days is around the kind of who are the influencers mm. and if you put us back 10 years it would have only been line managers and I think it is now also about well it's peer influencers you know if you're only talking to line managers you've not got enough so it is about peers I think the danger is to me is if we try and manage people too much right. to advocate for us and to post what we want them to say and mm. that kind of thing. And that becomes then inauthentic yeah. and which people spot that a mile off and then yeah. they stop believing it, I suppose, is the problem. Because mm. I think the Edelman Trust Barometer this year says something really surprising because it started to talk about employee communication. I was like, oh, OK, we're on the map. But basically what it was saying is we've done all this research and one of the questions we asked 33,000 people around the world is if a company started to sort of communicate with you, who would you most believe as a spokesperson? And they put the technical expert first, then they put the regular employee, and further down the line, they put the CEO. And it's like, ah, so people are more trusting people like them. But you're right, if you force it, it suddenly starts becoming authentic. No one's going to believe anything at all. So yeah. how do you find that balance, I suppose? Mm. I mean, there's a nice case in the book from AXA, actually, who got employee reporters, and they've been very careful about not saying we'd like you to, you know, they give them quite a loose brief. We're quite brave, really. So these employees have chosen to report things as they like. You know, they've just literally gone and said, go and explore this issue. Yes. So they found this right nice balance of helping people hear from someone like me, mm. but not putting the corporate wrapper around yes. it and controlling things too much. Yes. Much of our role as I see communications professionals is to help organisations with change and transformation. Liam, you've written that ISG pros can be in danger of making transformation worse and should take no one's word for the wisdom of the plan. And I wonder if you could just explain the first steps an IC pro should take when someone says, we've got a new plan, we'd love you to communicate it. Years of bitter experience of working on big transformation projects it happens time and time and time and time again is you go in and they go yeah here's the plan it's all very good and we're going to do this and then after that we're going to do this and then we'll transition to this phase and these 14 levers will happen and the gantt chart out and the gantt chart out and what we'll do is there's a little bit of reorganization right at the beginning where we right size for corporate success okay and then you forget that and you focus on the next 14 levers of change and you know and it's always got a name it's always called something like project sovereign or project remove or you know project ghl or whatever and then, of course, what happens is as soon as the reorganisation bit's done, where they suddenly achieve the headcount reductions and the uh, the balance sheet, suddenly the executive team lose interest in everything else. And actually, well, you're sitting here going, are we going to do all the other cool stuff? And they go, no, we're going to take a back step now. Actually, you were just trying to save some money, weren't you? you know, mm -hmm. Deep down, you that's all you really cared about. So the crucial thing, I think, the communicators should be asking is how realistic is this stuff i mean i've sat in on complicated programs where hr remodel everything and then a month in you suddenly realize this was bonkers it never was going to work but so how realistic is this stuff and what really really matters here what's the end game of all of this communication is it that we're going to completely remodel the business or is it that we're going to try and slash the cost base by 20 percent mm. mm. and ask really tough questions about it because what you'll do is you'll just turn into a propaganda minister and you'll just end up pumping the stuff out 
And it's a lesson that, you know, I'll have to relearn on a regular basis. And at the time when Sue and I first met, I remember there was an occasion where we had to throw someone out of the comms office because he'd come in and started shouting us really? and calling us a bunch of Nazis. And, and he was really angry and he probably felt justified, this guy, because he felt that we were pumping out lies on behalf of the organisation. And actually, quite often... When organisations do stupid stuff, the comms department is the team that actually makes it look good. And sometimes you've got to remember, A, that you've got a duty of care to the people you're communicating with, and B, your job sometimes is to is to actually just ask the awkward question. Yes. Um, I think Russell Grossman talks about one of his favourite phrases. It's about being the grit in the oyster, but not the prick in the balloon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like Russell, yeah. yeah. But I, I think that, that, that's a completely subject. Your job is actually to say, are you sure? Are you sure it's going to work? Is you sure? Are you sure? Uh, but your job's not to actually derail the whole thing. Your job is actually to be the conscience and be the voice of sanity. I don't know if that's accords with your take on it. It does. And I think, especially, I'm sure we've all been here, if you're involved in a change project, they can be slaves to the project plan, can't mm, they? Yes. And actually they want a comms plan from you because it's a tick on the project plan. Right. Even though you can't write it yet because the change isn't planned. I think there are occasions when... I mean, I'm quite a quiet kind of person, really, but I can dig my heels in if needed. No. Um, I can. I know you've never <laughs> encountered this, Liam. But there was certainly one occasion where I'd written the comms plan, and basically what I'd said in my comms plan is, your project plan is not doable. You know, there was going to be a union vote, and I basically said, you're going to lose that ballot. You haven't allowed enough time. Um, you can't just pump stuff out and expect people to go for this. It's going to be very unpopular. We need to do it this way. You have not allowed enough time. And they put the project on green. Because they said, oh, we've got a comms plan. And I was literally waving my paper and going, read the plan. I'm telling you, you are on red. You know, you're going to have people out on strike. And they wouldn't have it. It was like, no, we're on green, there's a comms plan. And I literally, I just had to pedal my way around the organisation until I found somebody senior enough to say, stop. Wow. Yeah, yes. because it was just this kind of process. And I, that's happened a few times, actually, in project mm. teams, where it's like, no. <laughs> Let's talk very quickly, because I feel we have to, about measurement. Again, Liam, I was reading something that you'd written. I think it was on Rachel Miller's website. And then this quote really made me think, because I thought, mm, OK, you'd been inspired to rethink your approach to reporting, and you'd stop showing leaders dashboards. And instead, and this is where the quote begins, walked leaders backwards through a discussion of the results that were being generated and the comms activities that were being delivered. Now, I just wondered if you could sort of explain that walking backwards approach and what that actually means. Very simply, I discovered that the first time you show a leader a dashboard, they feign interest and go, oh, it's interesting. Second time you show it to them, they go, oh, it's that, nothing's changed. Uh, so all you're reduced to is actually justifying your existence. It's much better to say, right, this is the result we got. We did a survey and it told us that, you know, people knew this, they understood that and they were excited about this, but that's what it told us. Is that the result you wanted, O oh, leader? And they then go, oh, actually, you know, I would have liked a bit more of that and I'm disappointed by that. OK, great. Well, let's look at what we actually did. So we did 14 emails, there were 16 newsletters, there was a tap dancing penguin. Do you think that these things delivered those results? Oh, I can see, yeah, that would have worked, that would have worked. OK, so when, next time round, what do you want the results to be? So let's now look at the activities that we're going to do and let's see if they're going to drive it. 
And then the other piece of it is actually saying, and here are some other issues that have come up we're not talked about. The crucial point, however you do it, you're going to have a different approach to every leader. But the crucial thing is actually to engage them in a conversation about these are the communications outcomes we're getting. Are they what we need to be? And that gives you the opportunity to have the conversation also that says, well, you know, we wanted to change people's behaviour. We wanted to make them safer at work or be nicer to customers or to cut costs. Are these outcomes delivering those results you want? So the crucial thing is just change your mindset from, I'm going to tell you how great I am and, you know, and oh, God, you ought to go and sack the manager of the Coventry branch because he's got really bad scores. Change that conversation much more to, what did you want to happen? Let's talk about how comms is helping. And that's crucially it. <laughs> and, and, and I don't think measurement needs to be a thorny issue for communicators. It's actually, maybe I've missed the point, but I always think it's actually really, really easy to do it. And just to remember, you don't have to have a PhD a lot of the time. You just need to remember that if you're gathering data and no one else is, that's useful data. So even if it just means that you're ringing around 10 people yes. once a week and saying, what's going on, that's Got to be useful. Uh, It might not be perfect, but it's certainly a lot better than not doing anything. Yeah, absolutely. Start in a simple way, I would say. And you're absolutely right. Start with an open question, qualitative research. Nothing wrong with that, is there? And I think my my most important tip is always is have some objectives and measure them. Yes. You know, what do you want people to know, feel and do? Measure that. Yes, (laughs) yes. Because we don't. You know, we measure the clicks. Yes, absolutely. We wanted people to do this, but we measure whether they read an article about it on the website. And that doesn't really tell you anything. So that would always be my... Look at what you're measuring. Yes, absolutely. Start with some objectives, ideally some smart ones, and you can't go far wrong. Your book has a whole chapter on, well, essentially communicating bad news, which I thought, well, that's really interesting because it is a big part of our job, communicating bad news, but it doesn't get written a lot about, I don't think. I haven't read loads of articles and blogs about it. I just wonder if you do ever have any initial hints and tips for people right now who might be listening, who are thinking, oh, yes, I've got some bad news coming up. I've got to communicate. Yeah, I think things that I think about, first of all, is I try and literally just put myself in people's shoes. So I think a really simple mistake that often gets made is if somebody's about to lose their job and you make them sit there for a good 10 minutes while you talk about the rationale of the markets and what's changed and blah, 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 and then you eventually get around to saying, and that means you're going to lose your job. That's mean. And as a line manager myself, you know, I've had to make my team redundant a few times. It's not nice. And I remember on one occasion, literally, I just start talking and somebody literally right in front of me said, we're going to lose our jobs, aren't we, Sue? And she burst into tears. You know, fortunately, I was getting immediately to that rather than kind of like, well, hang on a minute, because I've got eight slides about the corporate environment before I get to that part. So really, it's when, you know, the what does this mean for me comes in. The second thing I always say is, show your workings out. Okay. So I always hark back to when I was doing maths at school and I'm really bad with numbers and I quite often got the answers wrong. But as long as I could show my workings, you know, I'm doing this and this is why I'm doing this and this is why I'd get the points. Mm. Um, And I really think that counts in change. So I think a lot of the time in change communications, it's like, heads you lose, tails you can't win either. You either tell people too early or you tell people too late. So at least if you explain the thinking behind, you know, this is why we've done it this way. Somebody once came up to me in a course because they'd lost their job and they said the organisation had divided people into two groups. The people that were staying got their briefing from the CEO, people that were leaving got their line manager. And she said, so don't you think that was wrong? You know, don't you think it sent a real signal that the people who were leaving didn't count? 
And I said, well, it depends, doesn't it? You know, it could be that actually they thought that was a really difficult message to hear. And in that case, it's better to hear it from somebody than you know, not a really senior leader. But the mistake they made is they didn't show their workings out. You know, they should have said, we've thought really carefully about, you know, who's standing in front of who. You've got me, you know, because this is a really difficult personal message and we know each other better. Yes. That would have made all the difference. So show your workings out, treat people as people, not a process. Mm. I think our colleagues in HR have lots of experience of this and the danger, in all honesty, sometimes is it becomes hardening, yeah. our process. Right, yes. And people exactly. become headcounts. Exactly. Yeah. We FTEs. start talking about FTEs. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, remember that people. So there was a time in an organisation where you both used to work for, Katie, you and I, I was the bad news person. That's mm. all I did for two years. Mm. I remember the day when I thought, I need to get out of this job. Really? It's because I walked into a meeting and my first question was, how many? Mm. And people mm. had become numbers. And I thought, mm. okay, time to go. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Many, many, many years ago, I remember working with someone. It's in the same organisation. I doubt he'll be listening, but you never know, who said the reason he had to get out of newspaper journalism was the day that he was driving to work, saw a crash happen in front of him at a series of traffic lights and reached for his phone to call his news desk and then called an ambulance. And I was like, oh dear, I have to get out of this job. <laughs> what does it make me become? But I think there is a moment, isn't there? There's a wake-up call that happens in all kinds of lives that we lead where we think, all oh, right, no, this is not right for me anymore. Yeah, and it happens with leaders too. I mean, I think the first time leaders have to give bad news, often they do it quite well because they're scared. Hmm. And so they want help and they're prepared. The times when I see leaders do stupid things, like, you know, the leader I had that hummed the funeral march as people walked in, Ooh. and you go, what were you thinking? And he said, oh, I was just trying to lighten the mood a bit. The leader who gave out Mars bars because people get shocked in change. And oh, yeah, I'm going to tell the story, yeah. The head of internal comms, whose team told me that they were going to be told they were losing their jobs on the 14th of February. And the week before, this person said to their team, so next week for some of you, it's going to be a St Valentine's Day massacre. <gasps> head of internal comms. And, you know, I think the danger is we become... It's like, oh, yeah, we've done loads of these. People yeah. are used to it now. No, you're used to it. Yeah, that's, this that's is somebody's point. job. This is, I remember, you know, when I had to make my team redundant again, the person sitting in my office saying he'd have to put his house up for sale. And we'd all sat in that house. You know, we'd all been around there for coffee. It just hit me. It was like, this is somebody's life and their mortgage and their house. I think the other thing to bear in mind is I think organisations can be alert to some of the issues you talked about when it comes to people losing their jobs or site closures, for example. But also bear in mind that quite often some of the bad news you have to break are things like projects that people have poured their heart and soul into. I worked in one place once and we'd, there was a project that people had worked on for about 20 years and people had virtually their whole career on this thing and the company killed it. But it was sort of, well, no one's lost their job. Mm. No, these are people, you know, there's people have had their whole, you know, you mm. know people have met their partners working on this project. Yes. You know, it means everything to them and it's, um, it's quite easy for organisations to take a corporate view at the top so I think for a communicator is actually understanding the audience well enough to have that alarm bell that goes off and goes, no, these are real people, this is how it's going to hit them, this is real communities. And I think having that bell mm. in your head is the really key thing. And one more tip maybe from, again, behavioural science, because I think there's so much useful stuff coming out from there, is the fact that actually uncertainty is the hardest thing, mm. that we crave certainty. So actually it is, strange as it sounds, it is easier to get 
bad news that gives you certainty about what it means for you yes. than it is to spend six months being uncertain about Absolutely. is it me. I think it's one reason why I've, I think it's just awful in the UK at the moment because we have three years of uncertainty. Yes. You know, what's going to happen? We still have it. And often in change, we can't help people know what's going to happen to them but we can give certainty at least about the process, yes. you know, whatever, and because we can give certainty. And what you can do is you can give them certainty about the decency of the person doing it. Right. And I think about when we were both working together, we both had CEOs who were getting massive bonuses. My CEO went out and spoke to all his staff, and the whole conversation started with, why are you getting such a big bonus? And he'd explain it, and he'd say, I'm not going to tell you it's fair, but I'm here to explain it. Mm. People walked out of those rooms going, yeah, it's not fair, but he's a decent bloke. And you had a CEO who sent an email around to staff going, it's not as big as other people get. I seem to remember. Yeah, I had a couple of different scenarios. I actually had one where we're stopping everybody's bonus and I sat down with him and said, please tell me, you know, I need to be absolutely certain that if you say you're not getting one, you're not. And he said, no, I'm really not, really not. And then it came out in the news that he got a bonus. And I was like, we've had this conversation. We had this conversation. And he said, yeah, I didn't get a performance bonus. This was a retention bonus. It's a different bonus. And it's like, God, we've all been there. (laughs) Go home and have a large glass of wine. (laughs) Sauvignon Blanc answer to problems here. Sue, can you just tell us a little bit about your new training programme, a three-part training curriculum called the Comms Expert Series? Who's that training aimed at? Who's it for? It's aimed at internal comms specialists and it's kind of my favourite topics really because to me there are things that I think are unchanging and really important whatever your job is and they are first of all being able to use communication as a business enabler, as we said, to add value. So the first course is called the strategic comms expert and it is all about how are you spending your time are you actually making a difference to your organization or are you just being busy and how can we work with that it's got things like arrow in it the second one is called the collaborative comms expert and it's all about those things what i like to call the conversations behind the plan you know that we have to be able to influence to coach to collaborate to help a leader be a better communicator that kind of stuff and the third is my current very favourite, fascinated topic, which is transformational comms experts. So it's about change. So yes, some of the classic stuff, but also some of the more recent stuff about neuroscience, behavioural science, meaning and purpose, which is the thing that makes, that's what I spend all my time reading about at the moment and listening to, because I just think it's fascinating stuff. Mm. Are we going to see a lot more purpose-led organisations, do you think? Genuinely purpose-led, as opposed to those that say, above our mission, there's a purpose, by the way. That's the question. Yeah, I hope so. I hope we see genuine purpose organisation. I saw an interview from Dan Pink, who of course has written a lot, that says, you know, fake purpose is worse than no purpose I agree like fake listening yes tell me everything I'm going to completely ignore it and not listen to anything you've said but just tell me yes yeah. and we've all been there with value statements haven't we there they all are framed on the wall mm. well as you were talking about helping people through change I was thinking I wonder what the values of the organization were when all those awful things were happening because the way we do change at AB is we have ABness and we know what ABness is. So when anything ever happens, you know, someone comes to us with a problem, a personal problem, or there's a structural change in the agency, we look at that problem through the lens of ABness. We just know what our response should be. But you're talking about organisations that must have values, but they don't have, it's not ingrained, it's words, it's posters on a wall. So those quick fire questions, what piece of careers advice do you wish you'd been given in your 20s or 30s? 
Mine would have been look after yourself, get sleep, take your holidays. There are other things in life other than work. I worked far too many hours. I let work take over my life, to be honest. And yeah, I enjoy what I do. But if I could go back to my 20 to 30 year old self, I'd say do less of it. Really? Do you regret? Keep keep your boundaries. Do you regret that, do you think, that time spent? I don't regret the jobs that I've done. You know, I've stayed in comms because I really like comms and I like what I've achieved. Would I have been better at putting a box around it and barriers around my time? Mm. Would I have made sure that I didn't just say I'm not taking my holidays this year? Mm. Absolutely. I think, you know, the focus on well-being now is absolutely right. But is that a curse of being in your 20s? Because I think when you're in your 20s, you're surrounded by this big cloud of should. Mm-hmm. You know, you should be better, you should do this, you should do that. And actually, when you get a couple of years older, in your 30s as you are, you kind of suddenly realise that actually should doesn't really exist. And That's it, why it's it, advice you wish you'd been given in your 20s and 30s. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to have to think about that because I did exactly that in my 20s and my 30s. At Barclays, I don't know, because you weren't working in um, the head office at Lombard Street, you were in Coventry. But there was a certain point at night when the lights would automatically go off. So by sort of 10 o'clock at night, you'd have to start waving your arms around in the air to get the lights to come back on. And when I think back about it, what was I doing anyway? <laughs> I mean, say at the, at the time, in my part of the organisation, I was a planner. We had planners and doers. And the joke was between me and my equivalent doer, we covered the whole 24 hours. Right. So, you know, one of us would start really early and the next mm. would be until stupid o'clock um, between us. Mm. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, it's nuts. So this is the question that always trips people up. What would you do tomorrow if you knew for certain you couldn't fail? I think it's cool to fail. I think it is super good to fail because... I think I've spent far too much of my life going, oh, my God, I'm going to fail. It's going to be terrible. And then, and I end up working stupid hours and getting stressed about it. And actually, some of the best things I've ever done have come out of me falling flat on my face or being with someone who said, you realise you got that wrong. It could have been better. So actually, being afraid of failing is, as long as you learn from it, is not a good thing. Failure is a good thing. I'm up for a bit of failure. I love that answer, by the way. It's got to be a comms thing. Mm? No, not at all. No. Assuming that I've got skills that I can do it, I would love to write a fictional book. Oh, really? Excellent. I love books. I love words. And I'm completely in awe of people that can use words to just create a story and do beautiful things with words. When I've written my beautiful book, I want a really good narrator to read it as an audio book. Oh, how lovely. Because I just think they're magical. They are magical. Yeah, if I can't fail, I'll do that, please. Oh, that'd be quite cool. Yeah, okay. Just back on the failure thing and the audiobook thing, I've just finished Black Box Thinking, which is all about the importance of failing. It's basically saying you can't succeed unless you fail because you've got to learn. And the only way you learn is by trying something and it not going right and working out how you can do it better next time. But it's narrated by somebody, I don't know who, but it sounds fantastic on the audio. So, yes, completely agree. When you think of the world's best communicator, alive or dead, who comes to mind? Well, it's a political one, so some people won't like it, but I love Barack Obama. I think he's an amazing storyteller. I really miss his positivity. And I just love to see, you know, whether he's with one person or how he would handle an objection in a room. Yeah, I miss Obama's communication. I thought about this quite hard. I think the person I would mention is a Vietnamese Buddhist monk called Thich Nhat Hanh. Mm. And he has the amazing ability to express incredibly complicated and challenging ideas incredibly simply. 
I think quite often, given things we talked about, what you prioritise in your life and how much effort you put in, I think from a communicator's point of view, we could all learn an awful lot from just reading some of his stuff. It's really interesting. Just the ability to express a human emotion in a really very simple way. It's really powerful. Thank you for that. And finally, you can have anything on a billboard for millions to see. What are you going to write on it? I'm going to write, comparison is misery. (laughs) And the reason I do that is so often... In my career, I've come across people who said, oh, I should do this, I should do that. And I've read this article from this newsletter about someone who's saying this is a great technique and this is great. And the things that make us most miserable is looking at other people and going, gosh, she's really clever or gosh, he really did a great job there or gosh, I'm, you know, I'm 35 and I should by now be, you know, doing this and where's my seat at the table? And no. Everyone is different. Every situation is different. Comparing yourself to other people is just the route to misery. Stop it. That should also be my advice when I was 20. (laughs) (laughs) Sue, do you have a billboard message for us? I'm going to delight Liam by making my last word what he said. (laughs) (laughs) Just this once, Liam, you can have the last word. (laughs) Sue and Liam, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank Thank you for asking asking us. It's good fun. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Internal Comms podcast. For the books and the other resources we mentioned, head over to the show notes on AB's website. That's abcom.co.uk. And while you're there, you might like to sign up for our monthly IC newsletter. It's called I Saw This and Thought of You. It gives you updates on the show, plus other newsy nuggets from the world of internal comms. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be really grateful if you could rate the show on iTunes, because apparently that makes us more discoverable for other IC pros who might find this show helpful. And to make sure you don't miss another episode, like the one coming up with Mike Klein or Hilary Scarlett, just hit the subscribe button on your podcast platform. Finally, I'd like to say a very heartfelt thank you. Thank you for listening to the show. It's people like you that are making this entire podcast journey possible. So until we meet again, lovely listeners, remember, it's what's inside that counts.